It's Monday, the 22nd of May, 2006. This is Glenn Zuckman at the Museum of Jurassic Technology in Culver City, California. I'm upstairs at the MJT Tea Room here with Museum of Jurassic Technology founder David Wilson and author Amy Bender. Amy Bender is the author of three books, The Girl in the Flammable Skirt, An Invisible Sign of My Own, and most recently, Willful Creatures. MacArthur Fellow David Wilson opened the Museum of Jurassic Technology at this Venice Boulevard location in 1988, and somehow it has stood for about 18 years now. Amy and David, welcome back to Strange Angels. Thank, Thank you, Glenn. There's a story about the Buddha. A priest comes out of a temple, sees the Buddha, and immediately realizes that this is an extraordinary individual, a sublime person, the likes of which the priest has never before in his life encountered. And he goes immediately over to the Buddha and asks, are you a god? And the Buddha replies, no, I am not a god. And the priest persists, are you a demigod? And the Buddha replies, no, I am not a demigod. And the priest still is convinced that he's in an extraordinary presence and and wants to try to figure it out. So he continues finally asking, well then, what are you? And the Buddha at last replies, I am awake. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I think we humans here in the 21st century must have the fullest daily dance cards that any humans have probably ever had. The number of things we achieve or try to achieve or like to believe that we achieve in a day is so huge. And yet I think we, or at least I anyway, am so overwhelmed by all that we're doing that I wonder if we really have time to process sort of any of it or if we're just going through in this narcoleptic stupor. And so I've been kind of thinking about these ideas of wakefulness and consciousness. And interestingly enough, I come to the work of both of you, Amy, you're writing, David, these installations curated here at the museum. And in a sense, they're both about stories about individuals who at first blush seem like they're way on the periphery of human culture and yet seem the more we kind of think about these individuals that you're both chronicling, maybe they're a bigger part of waking existence than we sometimes realize that, you know, we kind of have this veneer that reality equals everybody loves Raymond and friends and Wall Street tickers and whatever else. And so I'm just kind of wondering, you know, what you think about wakefulness and consciousness and and sort of the world we live in and and the worlds that you both have been exploring. It's curious to me when you're talking about, um, I agree about about the dance card and how full lives are. But the concern about whether or not we have time to process all of that is that's something I think that I've been thinking about more and more because I'm not sure what that processing is. What's the difference between the experience and the processing of the experience? Mm. And is the processing of the experience really a necessary component or are there ways to just live the experience where... And that is processing. And that is, pro- that is the processing, right? That that's one and the same thing so that the richness of it doesn't become a burden but actually just, you know you began with the Buddhist kind of connection. And I mean, and that feels like a very kind of, kind of more Buddhist way, I think, of going through life is, you know, what, how, what, is the, what are these? That if we actually were awake, we wouldn't necessarily have we to. We wouldn't have to process it at all. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. But that is, I think, what wakefulness really is. Yeah, I can see that. And I think it's a great question. It's, it's hard for me to know how to address it effectively because I like the question so much and I think I'm also thinking about it a lot. So I get a little abstract or it feels a little hard to concretize it. And I do feel like I'm maybe aware that I need, if I don't manage the time, then, it, then my dance card does get 
really full and actually something does happen where I'm not quite um, able to experience the things that are happening. And it feels more and more like it has to be a very kind of aggressive carving out of an individual. You have to say, make a choice to say, how much time do I actually need in a day that is mine versus, you know, related to something else. I have made a strange shift in the last year where I used to just use so many exclamation points in my email. My emailing self was very full of exclamation points and there's been some kind of shift where I feel like I can't spend all those exclamation points on every email. I actually need to be a little sparing and I can use them sometimes, but it doesn't need to be like, hi, how are you? That's so great. You know, that it can really feel like there are moments and there's something about that that feels relating to the idea of taking that time or a kind of wakefulness in terms of the level of minutia. Do I feel like there's an exclamation point or is it a shortcut to trying to actually spill out something and not really think about it and then go on to the next thing. So it's something about a deliberateness, too, that feels like it's, it's very small, but it's kind of, you know, hopefully has ramifications that are larger for me. On Tuesday, the 7th of July, 1931, Mrs. Alice May Williams of Auckland, New Zealand, wrote a letter to Edison Pettit and Seth Nicholson, astronomers at the Mount Wilson Observatory here in California. Wonderful astronomers. Yes, And in her letter, she wrote, I believe I have some knowledge which you gentlemen should have. If I die, my knowledge may die with me, and no one may ever have the same knowledge again. And again, I'm thinking of, you know, contemporary times where at least we have this sense that any knowledge can be obtained through a three-minute Google search. And then I look at these individuals sort of chronicled in Amy's books or these individuals chronicled here in the museum who seem to be individuals possessing sort of not generic knowledge but unique, maybe arcane knowledge that almost resides corporeally within the body of the individual. And wondering what you think about Alice May Williams with her knowledge that no one may ever have again vis-a-vis three-minute Google searches, vis-a-vis your books and your museum and, and these unique individuals. It seems to me both true and not true that all of us have information that dies with us and at the same time there's certain kind of human pathways that are re, the grooves grow deep over time. But I guess what I think of in terms of say the installations here or what I'll try and do in writing is it feels like you pick something and it actually doesn't always even matter what you pick but you kind of try to go into it with some depth. And I think a person's brain will just sort of be interested in kind of finding a certain route into whatever happens. So for me, if I'm just throwing elements together in a story, then my brain, if those elements are active enough for me to play with, it'll start synthesizing in some way and trying to make connections and trying to find the emotion in it. And that will be my experience of writing. And sometimes it'll work and sometimes it won't work. But that there's something about that kind of attraction to an idea or something that here it feels like there's you go into it deeply and then you start to open something up. And, and I think in some kind of peculiar way, you just feel it as a reader or as a visitor. Hopefully you just feel in some way that something's being investigated. Something's being genuinely investigated, even if you don't know what that is, and that that is helpful. And that's, I think, often when, as a reader myself, that's what I'm kind of looking for in a sort of non-specific way, is I'm looking for someone investigating something. And it doesn't have to be answered, and it doesn't have to work. 
but I want to see that genuine. But it has to be a real investigation. It does, and it, so in that way, it can't be the three-minute Google search because it. And so many three-minute. There's so many things that can appear to be a genuine investigation, but aren't. And you can just feel it in some way. It doesn't satisfy on some kind of, you know, level of human yearning or something. It doesn't get satisfied. I think when you ask the question, Glenn, you ask it in the right way about embodiment of knowledge, I think is so much to the point that it's not the knowledge itself, it's the way the knowledge is embodied or communicated where the true meaning is carried. I so was, it's not just the data in a book or, definitely a, or a website? definitely not the data. And curiously, I really had this sense at the end of The Girl in the Flaming Skirt, I love the stories, I love the kinds of crazy flips and cartwheels of imagination, but in the end, the thing that I kept going back and like reading and rereading was the way in which those things were done. It's basically about the writing. I realize that you can't really tease things apart like this in any meaningful way, but it's as much how it's done as what is done, and I think the same thing happens a lot at the museum. Oftentimes the content of the exhibits is for us interesting or we wouldn't be able to go through the process but it's the intent of the investigation or the seriousness or like the depth or the it's the kind of intent and intensity with which something is done that in the long run I mean that's what all education to me really ultimately becomes about you us most what really is important in your educational process as a human being rather than being taught in the way that people usually think of teaching working so it's the form and the content yeah i guess you can break it in into into that but it's a little elusive because it's yeah. right it's not I, d I don't really mean to say it's just like the form versus content it's not because there's something else because it it's more an embodiment having to do with like bodies and people, you know, you learn from the presence of a person, whether that presence comes through, and it can, and you, that presence can come through in writing, in just the way you yeah. write something. Yeah. In Amy's new book, Willful Creatures, the case of the salt and pepper shakers, the inspector says, I believe that mysteries surface in unexpected forms. And if I am to be a genuine investigator, then I must follow what I feel needs investigation. And I kind of wonder if the inspector speaks a little bit for both of you when he says, I believe that mysteries surface in unexpected forms, and if I am to be a genuine investigator, then I must follow what I feel needs investigation. Well, think, nice line. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> it's, it's fun to hear it in the context of this, actually. It's, it's gratifying, so thanks. But it, yeah, it feels to me related in terms of that idea of it's sort of writing about writing in a way where it's sort of an instinct to follow something, but then it's all in the approach. And I don't always know which thing is going to open up something in me that I can dive into. And I guess actually, interestingly enough, I mean, in, in that short story, there's this uh, double murder that seems obvious what's happened, but the inspector is obsessed with why these two people own 14 pairs of salt and pepper shakers. Yeah. And so he's off on what seems to be this ridiculous tangent, but feels so compelling to him. Yeah. And as I look at the quirky stories and the quirky museum exhibitions that you both have created, you know, it again has this sense to me that that these are things that are sort of not the first most obvious choice to look at, and yet they feel you know, so passionately explored that they ultimately are where you both had to go. And, and so I don't know, I just felt like the inspector in a way was maybe expressing a sentiment that you both feel in your work. 
How do those things come into your writing or come into your life? Can you even think or talk about that? About how the ideas will form? Yeah, or, exactly. I think, it, I don't know. So it, it, I don't know how they form, but it'll feel like I'll set aside time and I'll just try out a bunch of them and then certain things I'll want to explore more. So I think I'll do, you know, 10 false starts and then something will have something in it. And I'll kind of feel it, like it'll just seem interesting to me. And then maybe that will die after a paragraph and then something else will go five paragraphs and then something else will go the length of a story and something else will have a novel. So, yeah, it feels kind of like groping in the dark that way. Do you have guiding principles? I think I probably do, but mm-hmm. not that I um, know off the top of my head. That you head. can talk about. It. Yeah. I mean, I think I have kind of leanings or interests that crop up preoccupations. Because I, I'll get asked that by whoever I'm talking to often, and I have to say something. Yeah. It's a very hard question. What do you say? So, well, we we do have this kind of motto that you'd never really see anywhere, that's utranslatio natura, which means nature as metaphor. And there is something in that, actually. Things that are available in that vast array that then more than others seem to have, like, metaphoric overtones or seem to have like create ripples or waves. I think for writing it feels like part of the way I feel that is about the structure of a story and Mm -hmm. where a story is going to go and there's a lot of talk about plot and it becomes this very imposed and kind of inorganic thing but actually plot is sometimes the most exciting organic part about writing for me is to feel like if I can let it go enough to just see where the story ends up that's very exciting and it feels like a plant. And it feels like that happens on a sentence level, too, but it really is about story. Like, how do you let a story grow? And why I get really repelled by kind of the rigid rules about story that you hear a lot, because it feels like it's pushing that away. I picked up on that so much in the writing of yours that I've read, how the progression of plot is almost always unexpected and does feel just remarkably organic and I don't understand why it is that that feels so good to me so deeply to have that kind of unpremeditated nature of the experience. It's just, is why, why should that be nourishing? But it is. Yeah. It's nourishing. That's really nice to hear. And it's, it's often what I'll read for, too, is Haruki Murakami is a favorite of mine, and I feel like he kind of patiently waits for the next leaf of plot to float down and I don't know where it's going to go and it's often like oh why am I over here okay and now I'm over here and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work but the yeah the really trying to let it happen on its own terms is often I think why I read actually Mm -hmm. you know and that when I start to feel like a story is going to go away that I expect it to go part of the pleasure of reading or whatever it is that nourishes me about reading that way it gets lost Well, before we go any further, it might be nice to experience a little bit of the work. And I guess normally when you have an author on the show, you have the author read their book. But I thought we might let David and Amy change hats today. So, Amy, we're going to go downstairs and let you give us a tour of a little piece of the museum, the trailer park. And David will be reading one of Amy's short stories. So why don't we maybe give a read and then we'll head for the trailer park? Okay, this is Drunken Mimi. There was an imp that went to high school with stilts on so that no one would know he was an imp. Of course, he never wore shorts. 
He bugged the girls. He had a few friends whose parents were drug addicts. He was the greatest at parties. He'd take any dare. He propositioned mothers. He told stories about airplane sex. He claimed he knew everything about women. They were all 15. No one dared contest that. One thing he didn't know was that there was a mermaid at the school. She was a sophomore as well. She wore long skirts that swept the floor and one large boot covering her tail. And she used a crutch pretending like her second leg, which of course didn't exist, was hurt. She was a quiet one, that mermaid. She excelled in oceanographic class, but she also made an effort not to be so good. She didn't want to call attention to herself. On every test, she missed at least three. What is plankton? A boat, she wrote. She was very beautiful, hair slightly greenish, which everyone attributed to chlorine, eyes purplish, which everyone attributed to drugs. The girl was called a snob. The boys shoved each other and agreed. The imp sat behind her in the one class they shared, English. He had a perpetual monologue of jokes going on under his breath. Did you hear the one about the square egg? He'd say to himself, laughing at the punchline before it even happened. Often, it never happened anyway. One day, he reached forward and dipped a strand of her long, mossy hair into his beer. He snuck beer into the class, no problem. He was a clever imp. He poured it into a Coke can. What he didn't know was that her hair had nerves. It was different than human hair. It was not dead skin. It was alive. The mermaid felt the change instantly and woozed with contentment. Liquid. Lifting. Home. Had the imp lifted the can, he would have been stunned. It was so light. Where did the beer go? Had he looked closer, he might have seen it riding up the strands of her hair, brown droplets on lime escalator, sucked up by the straw of the lock. Foam vanishing into the mane in front of him, the mane he pictured at night floating over his small shoulders when he was in bed, naked, eyes closed. Snob, queen, hair, green, mine. The mermaid got drunk off the beer. She had very low tolerance. There was no alcohol allowed underwater. That day, she exited English class swaying. The imp picked it up right away. He thought, man, she's a party girl too. She's perfect, drunken Mimi. He worried about taking off his clothes. He worried about her hand grazing to his knee. What are those wooden poles doing where your shin should be, she'd ask. She'd have a puzzled look in those purpled eyes. Snob, he'd think. He worried. But still he tracked her through the halls. The way she leaned hard on this drunken day was sexy. It was lunchtime. The mermaid wandered off to lie down under the orange-red bleachers. Her head felt blurry. Her hair was alive. When she let it stray onto the dirt, her hair coughed. She put her backpack under her head, and that was better. The imp found her there. He wasn't sure what to say. Did you hear the one about the man with one leg, he began. Then he felt stupid right away. Bad choice. The mermaid looked up. Excuse me, she said. The imp sat down next to her, arranging his stilts. So, he said, a guy walks into the bar. She turned her head slightly towards him, but said nothing. He lay down next to her. The dirt was flat and fine, and he picked up a discarded cigarette button, began digging a hole to put it in. The imp was nervous. He hoped no one would be sitting above them on the bleachers eavesdropping. That tall guy, they'd say, he's not nearly as smooth as he says he is. I like your hair, he said then. Thank you, said the mermaid. She paused. She looked at him for a long second. Then she said, you can touch it if you really want to. Really? The imp wanted nothing more. 
really, said the mermaid. She gave him a limp smile. Just be gentle. The imp left the half-buried cigarette butt and reached his hand forward to stroke down the fine green strands. Soft, he said. The mermaid shivered. Each hair delivered a tiny note of murmurings all the way down through her. The imp stared at the root and let his hand ride the sheen all the way to the ends. So did you hear the one about the dead cat, he said, giggling a little. The mermaid didn't answer. Her eyes were closing. See, there's this cat, the imp began. And it gets hit by a car. And when it goes to heaven, St. Peter asks why it should be let into heaven. I know you're an imp, said the mermaid. His hand paused. Don't stop, she said, please. How did you know, he wailed. No one knows. He pictured the police. He pictured a PA announcement. He clutched her hair for a second inadvertently. Out, said the mermaid. Gentle, please. Will you bust me, asked the imp. Of course not, said the mermaid. I like imp, she said. You do? Definitely, she said. Imps are sweet. Sweet, sweet. He touched her arm. No, she said, just the hair. He twitched and coughed, stroked her hair again, slower now. Her face was starting to flush, a slow reddening. It's my secret, he said. She said, I understand. He said, I'm not so sweet. Her hair was growing staticky. It clung to his fingers. Okay, he said, and began giggling again. Okay, he said, so the cat, the dead cat, it tells St. Peter it's been a good cat. It brought mice to its owner for many years, said the imp. His legs turned in and out, the stilts brittle bones beneath his blue jeans. He kept stroking her hair, roots to the end, root to end. St. Peter, continued the imp. So St. Peter sends the cat to hell because it's a killer. He paused, hand in the middle of her head. Don't stop, she said again, root to end. Hair curved around his fingers in soft coils. Your hair is pretty, he said. She was quiet. Her hair lifted off the backpack onto his hand, a cloth of pale, pale green, a curtain rising. The imp's hand was steady, but his fingers were trembling now. Okay, he said. So in hell, the devil said, catch me some mice, killer cat. I want to cook them in my stew. But the cat said, no. It said, I won't do it for you, devil. I only kill mice for good masters. I won't kill mice for you. And poof, the cat went straight to heaven. The imp giggled. He looked down at the mermaid. That's it, he said. That's the joke. Root to end. I made it up, he said. Her eyes were closed. Her breath was faster. Mimi, said the imp, are you okay? Don't stop, she said, barely breathing. Please, she said, keep going. He kept stroking down, watching close what was going on. And when her back finally curled up, breath out in puffs, he didn't stop even then. He was steady and quiet and watching. He was root to end until finally she reached up her hand, breathless and grabbed his, holding on so tightly, thanking him over and over, not snobby at all. Thank you, thank you, until he laughed out loud in surprise, her purple eyes purpler, and he thought he smelled flowers. So we are in a room called Garden of Eden on Wheels, and it says collections from Los Angeles mobile homes and trailer parks. And it's a room that I tend to come to, one of the first rooms I come to when I visit this museum. And the thing first to mention about the room that's true for many of the rooms in the museum that I'm always struck by is amazing lighting. It's so intimate and it's so comforting. And everything is just lit enough to kind of beckon you over 
but it's also kind of mysterious because you can't quite tell what things are from a bit of a distance. And there's this great sound. I don't know if the people can hear it, but there's a little bird Twitter that's attached to some of the trailers. But they're in these kind of oval dioramas. They're just these little settings that, like if I come to this one, this is below the park distribution graph, which shows where all the trailer parks are in the world with little tiny pale blue dots. When you come up close, there's a kind of miniature world created and there's a little trailer park and it looks like there's a small kiosk where maybe you Oh, and here's the driving theater. Oh, amazing. And there's kind of a background sound, almost of water and a little bird. So the drive-in theater, have, there are these little stems. Now, these would be things people would drive up to and take the speaker. Then there's a little fence, a little bit of barbed wire on the top of one side and not on the other, and a couple trees. And I guess the feeling I love in it is I find them both kind of desolate and also very comforting at the same time, and I love that combination. This is another one that I love, this one over here, which has these little tiny lights on the tree. And it's another oval, and it's um, like a pretty large trailer with a little garden trellis, like a little shaded area and a little walkway with stones, propane tank, and it looks like a very cheerful trailer. The light's on in the front, so I'm imagining the people that are in it are in front, probably eating a meal. There's like these nice little lights in the tree, and there's like little bricks along the side and a hedge. It's just very inviting. I guess one of the feelings that I have from these trailers that I have often in this museum is that something technological seems organic. So it feels like part of the landscape in a way that it's very imperceptible how you've made that come across. But it feels to me like this is where someone lives and it could be made out of, you know, a tree, but it happens to be a trailer. And I think that's part of what I find comforting is it doesn't feel like it's about alienation. And it feels like it would be very easy for someone to do this and have it be about a kind of alienation. And it feels like that's not what it's about at all. And that's a little bit rare. And here's another one. There's a sound. Sorry, I just can't get enough of them. Uh, and again, it's the lighting. This has a kind of pink light. This is a tiny little trailer under what looks like a freeway. Again, it's a, there's something kind of lonesome about this little trailer underneath the freeway, but it also has some palm trees. This is a great one. And there's something very um, inviting about it, too. So it's a teardrop-shaped trailer. It seems like someone's trying to get refuge beneath the city in a place. They just found a place, so it feels less settled in, but it also feels like they did find a little refuge. But there's a sound of dripping water, which um, is a kind of lonesome sound. And it's a, that feeling of kind of focusing in up close on something where there'd be all these cars moving above, and here's this little world of a person there. So there's, I guess, a lot of humanity, I feel, in these, which I really like. I kind of want to look at them all, but, you know, we can go back through on the other side. So this is the room of the rotting dice, which has a Ricky Jay monologue. They're literally installations of rotting dice. They are old die sitting together, and they are um, made out of some kind of organic material that started to decay. And they're in these various stages, and of course each stage has its own beauty. So when they're crumbling, there's a kind of diamond-like glitter, and this one is cracking, and so it looks a little bit like frozen ice. And here's one with black beneath. You know, an object that is so usually very shiny and contained and square and seems kind of impenetrable is suddenly made real and connected to the earth. Suddenly organic and vulnerable, and they're really beautiful. They suddenly have a beauty to them. 
And I love, again, just, you know, on a, just the level of display, how the lighting is focused and how the background is gray and how just the eye is led to the items really gently. I get a little resistant in museums if I feel like I'm not allowed to wander at my own pace, and I feel like this museum is very inviting to the wanderer. Drunken Mimi from Amy Bender's book, The Girl in the Flammable Skirt, read by David Wilson, and a tour of the Museum of Jurassic Technology, Trailer Park, and Dice, led by Amy Bender. You're listening to Strange Angels on KBeach Global Radio, 1310 AM in Long Beach, across the globe at www.kbeach.org. James Frey wrote a book, an autobiography, A Million Little Pieces, and earlier this year it came out that it was perhaps not 100% accurate and caused a bit of a fuss in the publishing industry. A few years ago, Lawrence Weschler wrote a book, Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonders, about this museum, the Museum of Jurassic Technology. Which also may have not been 100% accurate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and he spends really a lot of the book on his own quest of the accuracy of the exhibits here. And I just kind of wonder how you both feel about this notion of truth, which strangely, we seem to demand it more from our artists than from our politicians. But is there such a thing as truth? Is it important? Is it knowable? Are we obsessed with it? Are there more important things? Sure, there's truth. Sure, it's knowable. Sure, it's accessible, but it's complex. Yeah. 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 So it's not the three-minute version once again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it seems like in some ways that's what we're sort of talking about is that kind of depth of investigation is about trying to get to something true. And I think that's what gets felt when you Mm -hmm. experience it. Exactly. I think you know truth in a way bodily, corporally. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's right too. Physical experience. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's not a thing in in a book. Yeah, well... There's a lot of truth in, in this book. Yes. In Amy's book. Yes, I mean. in, in her fiction book, yes. <laughs> yes, right. And interestingly, I, at the Festival of Books at UCLA a couple of weeks ago, I asked a couple of authors what they thought about the, the James Frey thing. And the fiction author thought that it was ridiculous that people were obsessed with that and that there's no such thing as truth and we should just get over it and, and work with the story. And the essayist thought that, no, it was a holy covenant with the reader and that he had broken it or the publisher had and that, that it was this terrible thing, so... There has been a lot of, there's been so much about, oh, there is no truth and truth is all relative. But it kind of misses the point almost to say that to me because it's not, you know, it's... Well, I guess my point, and really you've sort of already said this, but when you picked up Amy's book, her book of fiction, and you said there's a lot of truth in this book, I guess that's sort of what I'm fishing for is that, is there more truth in maybe a work of fiction than there is in a work of fact? And or, I mean, clearly a work of science can have the same visceral experience of truth, I think, that a book of Amy's fiction can have. I mean, I think that truth can be contained in all kinds of ways, but it's complicated. It's just not easy to describe clearly and quickly. There was some documentary about Darwin at some point on PBS a couple years ago, and one of the things that really stuck with me about it was that he had this kind of intention to, you know, investigate and learn about animals and plants and all that stuff. And when he hit upon evolution, he was almost devastated to have to reveal this truth he had discovered. It was going to shake so many people's lives up. And it was this piece of information, and he now held it, and it was just going to... Did didn't he, in fact, initially want it not published until after his death? I think yeah. so, yeah. And there was this feeling of, like, there was an enormous truth that changed the structure of civilization and is still controversial. 
And it came with this enormous kind of emotional piece to it. And, and there was something about the power of an idea, I felt like, in that. That it was science, it was factual, but it came with that kind of an enormous depth of intention and actually pain. Because I think in order to think that, I mean, he had this ability to think outside the public sphere that... Although and actually, and that, to me, is wonderful because so often you think of, you know, the joy of an elegant truth, you know, and the pleasure of the sense of kind of completion or wholeness that comes with perceiving finally an elegant truth and, yeah. and the ring of truth and all. But actually, oftentimes there's this other quality that like kind of like horrible, yeah. you know, realization and the dissonance and the difficulty that it creates. and yeah. Yeah, that it can be an too, elegant... Too many answers too quickly can be yeah, traumatizing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And there's... Um, I just want to throw this kind of quote in, too, because it just relates to the, also the nature as metaphor. I read Dante's Inferno with some friends last year, and I'd never read it. And there was a line, and the line was something like, God has found a grandchild in your art. And it was a little confusing, but then the footnote was, at the time, it was thought that God's child was nature, and nature's child was art. So art would be God's grandchild. Wow. <laughs> it's such a beautiful, and like, it was just a beautiful structure to think about the relationship, you know, and what, when people talk about organic something in art, how that connects to it as it being birthed out of nature. And it's also a really nice definition of God. It's one I can kind of get behind. <laughs> you know? Wow. Did you only read Inferno? Yes. I haven't read Paradiso it's a, or it's, Purgatory. It's, yeah. uh, it's the better of the books, or it's the best of the books. Why is that? <laughs> What's a, what does that say? <laughs> it's what I heard is that Paradiso kind boring, of loses. Right, yeah, right. he kind of loses an edge. <laughs> Actually, and they seem to get less interesting the higher you go. Interesting. Yeah, Purgatory is, is, is more interesting than Paradise. Yeah. <laughs> Paradise is hard to write about. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that, that seems to be true in, in, with... With works in general, doesn't it? What is that true? That Bosch paintings of hell are always going to be more compelling than than Bougereau paintings of angels, mm-hmm. or you know. Yeah, but Tiopolo's painting of angels are great, but they look like angels that maybe could have just kind of climbed out of hell. You know? <laughs> <laughs> just got a break. Why do you both make the work that you make? Why do you ask questions like that? <laughs> <laughs> Well, but actually, I will say, and you say guiding principle, I feel like what's present in the conversation that feels really nourishing to me about this conversation is it feels like, it feels to me like I'm going to fail all the time, but I like the idea of trying to make work that is just what you say, that has a kind of corporeal component that is felt in the body somehow. So it's really about a value system, and it gets expressed through the work, but it's about a value system about, I think, for myself, what it, you know, what do I think is important about being a human being, and how can I try a little bit to express that? And it doesn't mean that I always know how to do it. I often don't. But if I can get a little sense that at least I'm going down that path, a path that I think is a valuable path. How do you know? How do you know when you are, and how much does that involve other people? I think other people can be helpful in telling me when I'm not doing it, and I think in terms of when I'm doing it, it feels like usually it comes from a sense of joy in the process. I feel really connected to it, or I feel like there's a freedom, and there's so often I don't feel that freedom. So it's the rarer time that I do, and that's generally the work that's gone out into the world has been from that place. Do you find that if as you're writing, something that you're working on feels right to you, that that becomes 
the work that most often has that kind of effect for other people? I do, though it's hard because I can sometimes like something and it doesn't necessarily isn't ready to go anywhere. So it can be almost like a little still life of a story that doesn't have a real still life mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. But I think generally it feels like when you know, it varies. Sometimes I have things that I don't feel like are quite working or I feel embarrassed by, and someone will read it and say, don't be embarrassed, this is actually working. Mm-hmm. And other times I'll present something that I feel like fulfills some idea of what a short story should be, and I'm a little puffed up and, you know, <laughs> think it's so great. And then they'll say it's actually boring and seems really contrived, and that's really also a good lesson. Mm-hmm. So it sure, seems sure. like there's some kind of place that's the it's not ego-driven, and it, it's just about a kind of joy in making something where that happens the best. Although I I thought it was kind of interesting that the short story that opens your book, An Invisible Sign of My Own, I I believe you said that people read it and said, oh, it's so grotesque, you can't include it, and that somehow that gave you the fuel to realize that you had to have the book open with that. That's all true, but I actually think it was me that said that to myself. So I think I thought, I can't possibly put this first, and then I thought, now I have to. Yeah, so I think it it was before I'd showed it to other people. I teach art appreciation down at Long Beach State, and one of the things I have my students do is I send them here to the Museum of Jurassic Technology to come look around and think about things. And I have some graduate assistants who grade their essays about their adventures, and I got an email from one of them maybe a month ago that said, I don't think your students get the joke. And I'm sure that people who've come through here have had every possible reaction and every possible sense of it being a joke or it being obscure or it being profound or being any other thing. But I I was just so taken by by that, both that she thought they didn't get it and that for her, I mean, I think there is a sense of humor here, certainly among other things. But my take is that you haven't been operating this place for 18 years just to make a joke. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there are, that's funny because that, you know, like you said, in terms of, visitors to the museum the range is just extraordinary it goes from people Mm. who begin like you're saying at the introductory slideshow and laugh uproariously and laugh at every single exhibit and not a clue what they're laughing at we don't have a clue what they're laughing at (laughs) (laughs) but it's great you know but it's wonderful and you can you know laughter is a really difficult thing to that's true to argue with you know it's just it's it's pretty compelling and so that's i mean that's so that's one end of the spectrum on the other hand we have you know people that view it as a religious experience Mm -hmm. and then you know someplace either in the middle or on some other plane they're just people that hate us you know i'm sure you've heard me talk about the guest books and people who on leaving don't just cross their name out but obliterate it so you couldn't possibly oh they they, they sign their name when they enter when they enter and then on you will just make so that through any (laughs) whatever form of forensic (laughs) you couldn't possibly have told that they visited the place wow so you know it's that wide wide range and really we're pretty comfortable with all of those reactions I think maybe the only one that's really hard for us to make peace with is this sense that our work is somehow a hoax or a joke mm-hmm. and that it's something that you get or you don't get. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's like you say, the group of us here and everybody that works here makes a wage that's basically pixie dust. And you don't do this kind of work for this long for a joke. It just mm-hmm. it's just has nothing to do with that, you know. We believe in it enormously in the same way that Amy believes in her work. You know, you just... It's its own reward, and that's not about a joke. 
It seems like that's where the sort of what's real, what's not real question actually ends up not being the question that the museum is actually engaging at all. It's it's not different. And the James Frey is... Um, it had a lot of, you know, desire to be a big hit behind it, and so it feels like it's not whatever. But it feels to me like it's an interesting parallel to the way people will talk about authors or Henry James or something and trying to figure out, well, what happened in his life and what was he writing about and what was the psychological motivation for this character. And and I'm very interested in psychology, but that kind of psychology seems like it's really much thinner yeah. than actually it's saying... It's limiting, yeah. Yeah, it's really right. limiting to say, let's just look at the work... Because in the work, you're going to get a sense of something complicated in the person that's going to be much more interesting than knowing kind of historically, well, where were they living and how did, when were they, didn't they write that book? And it's an attempt to sort of almost reduce the work. Analyze via biography. Yeah. And I think it's, um, it happens a lot. And so it, it feels to me like it's a way of actually stepping away from a kind of intimacy you feel when you connect with what someone is doing. There's this intimacy, and it's a way to be like, well, but here's, you know, really he was, you know, 47, and blah, 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 you know, and like it becomes something really different. I was talking to the art critic Christopher Miles, and, and we were talking about uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat's work, and, mm. you know, he has the putatively early years when he was quasi-drug-free and the later years when he was, you know, much more under the influence, and... Chris says, at least for his own eye, that he really doesn't see a significant difference in that work, and yet the prices that the work fetches is monumentally different, and huh. his belief is that the price is based not on actually looking at the work, but rather the price is based on looking at the date of the work and comparing it against the biography, and then you make a judgment based sure. really on sure. the biography. Right. And the work more under the influence goes for more money. Less. Less oh, money. Less. The earlier, oh, more pure. Okay. Oh, more, that's funny. More I would have uh, yeah. 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 in some way. <laughs> it's like <laughs> somehow. Huh. Why is that that we thought that it, <laughs> <laughs> that it would somehow have some kind of like edgy value, value of like, he was really out of it for this right. one. Right. You know, a gazillion dollars. <laughs> Uh, well, actually, speaking of my art appreciation students, I'm wondering if you'd each offer them some advice for, you know, a first visit to a place like the Museum of Jurassic Technology, how to come experience this institution. Um, I think that's Amy's job. Oh, fair okay. enough. <laughs> All right. So my sense is... You've, you've sent your writing students here, actually. I right? have. I've come here a couple times as kind of a final trip where we uh, come as a class and then we go have lunch after at the uh, Indian place a couple doors down and it's really fun and they just kind of wander and I think it's about really tr there's actually a ton of information in this building and so I, I feel like it's a small museum but it's a museum where you really have to kind of sniff around until you find places where you want to linger and then linger there. I don't think it's the kind of place where on one visit you can take in the whole thing and so and at the same time, it's a nice size place, so it's like you can take in quite a bit, but I would say to your students to kind of trust a little intuitive approach to sort of, you know, acclimate yourself and then find some places where you just feel pulled to stay in that room and then kind of experience the room and let that guide you to the next room. Could you write that up? <laughs> <laughs> I would be delighted to. <laughs> What's your favorite century? You can't really have a favorite, you like them but all? you can. But you, the, but you can definitely. I think that you definitely have times that you're drawn to. Yeah. But you're, I think you're drawn to different times for different reasons yeah. too, as well. It's so true. what's what's the time? What's one time you've been drawn to? Well, I mean, I think obviously looking here, the 17th century was mm. like something that was. Mm. That seems like a remarkable. And the more I learn about it, 
the more awed I am. Tell me a little about the 17th century. Well, it was just, you know, it was obviously a remarkable period in which I think that the relationship between mind and nature was in a kind of very expansive mode. Mm. It was it was a kind of a cracking open in a way that shortly thereafter was going to kind of come down with steel jaws. Mm. Within like a hundred years yes. or so, there was some very sturdy blinders that were put on the culture. And those blinders have obviously served to very good ends as well, but also have been extremely limiting. But that the moment just before those blinders were placed on us as a group, the possibilities seemed enormous. And the interconnections between mind and the natural world and the artificial world were... I just recently had the chance to go to Dresden and see this collection called the Green Vault that has work from that court of what was then Saxony, a court that was essentially in competition with the court of Rudolf II for creating mind-numbing objects of just, it's just utterly remarkably, unbelievably detailed. During that period as well, human skill and artistry had reached this remarkable apex, really, that combined then with that freedom of mind just produced. Okay, but I said too much. I want to hear what Amy, I'm way more <laughs> to hear what Amy might say. That's really, really nice. Um, you know, I think I was very convinced by your answer, so it, it sounded pretty great. And I guess the other thing that came to my mind was that kind of time, I guess, turn of the century, early 1900s, whenever modernism kind of ended, where it just felt like all the walls to art had just been breaking down and people were coming out with all these books and all these paintings and all this theater and dance that was shocking that people had never even conceived of before. And Beckett and James Joyce and Virginia Woolf and all the, uh, and Picasso and Gertrude Constructivism Stein. Constructivism and yeah, yeah amazing. Just period. this whole amazing. amazing kind, like it feels almost like in the digital world now, the speed that things are changing, there was this speed in kind of all the arts where things were just changing and, and all the notions of what built a story or what made a painting or what a subject was, were all just falling apart. I think that must have been incredibly exciting and what is, terrifying. What is it that creates those times? You know, yeah. I mean, why do those things come to pass in those the, ways? These uh, amazing zeitgeists. Yeah, that, just m- these moments. Yeah, and how it seems like a constant human thing to think, well, we're done, and that can't be broken down again, and yet it will be, but we can't conceive of how. And, exactly. You know, what will it be? And then it's actually very exciting to imagine. How do you think of this time? that we're trudging through as compared to times like that. How do you categorize these times? It feels like there's a lot of circling in these times. So there's a lot of kind of, you know, that people talk about irony or post-irony or like what's the place of, you know, being reflecting on structure so much that people know exactly a kind of postmodern approach to all things and we're so aware of ourselves and how we participate. And that can become really smothering too. So it feels like there's a kind of circling on itself that can actually take away some of that I think intention that you were talking about earlier and it can become flip or easy and so I think that's the danger and it almost feels like where do we dig up the earnestness in that and it can be earnest irony but like and I think people are doing that but what is that going to look like it feels like there's a potential like hamster in a wheel feeling a little bit a funny wheel but it's still, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's still a wheel 
this time that we live in, we've gone from slide rules to to these amazing laptop computers that we're re- recording this interview on. And it's, a, it's incredible that that much has changed in, in less than a human lifetime. And I kind of wonder when I look at, you know, wars or, or things like that, it seems like nothing changes. And when you look at technology, it seems like the change is obviously accelerating and relentless. And how much change do you think is all engaged in the technology and are humans technology aside changing or are we the same and it's the mm. technology that makes existence different? And that's, that's, I mean, it's so tough. Yeah. Mm. That's a really, cause that's something you can't help but to think about a lot. Yeah. And especially if you do it in like broad expanses of time, if you look back, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I just don't have the tools to look back even at all beyond, you know, a few thousand years. But even if you just look at it a few thousand years and you read work from that period of time, it's just level yeah. in its insightfulness and brilliance. Yeah. And I mean, you you know, there's things written today as leveling, but that was written all those many years ago. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the differences is the amount of material. And I think that we all, that people kind of recoil at the amount of material, I mean, Glenn, I think before he turned on his piece of technology, was talking about the fact that there are 200 million or however many... <laughs> 2,000 gigabits per 2, second. 2,000 yeah, gigabits, of, gigabits of material entered output. into the, you know... Planet Earth consciousness. Planet Earth, exactly, every second. And I think, you know, we just immediately recoil from that, that it just seems overwhelming. But, you know, I trust the process, really. That's nice. I think that somehow... That's it's working in the right in in somehow it wouldn't be doing it if it weren't I can't say anything without thinking of its opposite at the same moment. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I think sometimes it makes speech a difficult thing. <laughs> There was two there. I think it's this week's New Yorker. There's a cartoon, and it's two cavemen sitting cross-legged, and one says, "Well, I don't know what the problem is. We have clean water, we have organic food, we have a lot of space, we have a good amount of time, but we only have a 30-year lifespan." <laughs> and it was actually a good counter-argument in a certain way for my, you know, feeling like, "God, it must have been great when there were all these things, and the planet was just, you know, bountiful." And it feels like, well, we are so crowded up with things, and we also have this, you know. Well, Incredibly I, I, enriched life in many ways. Again, interesting that more detailed, complex thinking can potentially leave you speechless. <laughs> right. right. Which m- maybe we should be more speechless more often. Who knows? But, yeah. uh, but at least maybe not for radio shows. <laughs> um, so speaking of all this technology, another certainly unanswerable question you know, we keep sort of getting these visions of neural implants and you wonder when you'll get the Shakespeare chip and, and instead of reading plays and seeing plays and studying Hamlet and maybe performing Hamlet for, you know, decades so that you can gain some understanding of that extraordinary body of work, uh, that you just get the Shakespeare chip and, and hmm. like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix, you just open your eyes and say, I know Kung Fu or I know Shakespeare. And of course, we don't know what that would mean, but but, but but what do you think it would mean? I mean, would you know Shakespeare, or or is it something? No, I don't think it's possible. I mean, I, I guess things could evolve in such a way, but it seems to me like it's. I don't get it. Like it doesn't feel like you could implant it in memory, but you wouldn't. Well, I mean, in a sense, that three-minute Google search is is beginning to get there. In that, cert- yeah. you can you can certainly look up any line instantly, and you don't have to memorize plays. The, you know the way you once did. And think of language. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I've been for two years or three years now beating my head against learning Russian. And Mm. I want very much to speak Russian well. Yeah. But I also 
love the process of learning the language. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, because it, if, it if does you want feel, the Russian chip, if there, if it does feel of all the possible chips, really a language chip might be something that yeah. is almost doable. It's m- way more conceivable than other kinds of bodies of knowledge. I just, I just don't know how it would work because you. <laughs> You would have to have these ways of knowing how to use the language that got implanted. Like, I actually just neurologically don't get it at all. I mean, I mean I, I'm, I'm not no sure. Neurologist. I'm not like, positive that I'm speaking <laughs> you know, quite that. But I mean, like at the beginning of, uh, I, I, I think about this so much, but at the beginning of the uh, Russian arc, did you see yeah, that? Yeah, I did the see Russian arc. Sakara film. Yeah. There, the protagonist, who I think is, was French. Purportedly, or something, maybe. And in the, he looked 18th century, I guess. Mm -hmm. But he said, and I seem to speak Russian flawlessly. (laughs) Oh my. (laughs) (laughs) And on the other hand, it's like, like I, you know, I play the accordion a lot, you know, and and I've just recently really been playing a lot. And I've been playing for 20 years, but not enough, you know. And then all of a sudden, I'm playing a lot. And it's great to know that if you really do something, you, you get better at it. But if I could just be given the ability to play accordion beautifully, flawlessly, would I want to do that? I'm not sure I would. Yeah. I think in one of those Joe Frank pieces, he explores, I don't know if it's you know the Shakespeare chip or whatever, but one of those chips and in his little imagining on that subject, when you get these things sort of implanted that you have complete knowledge, but they have no real meaning. That When you get the accordion chip, you, you, would... you could do it, but it's not really important to you. Yeah, but it almost feels like that would be a knee-jerk reaction. To uh-huh. I mean, how do you know? How do you know that they wouldn't do? Is it only through struggle that you achieve that kind of meaning? Hmm. I don't know. I get a lot of brochures from paper companies showing off their paper with glorious ink on it and by these beautiful designers. And one that came in had this photograph of a bathtub full of pencils. And the illustrator whose bathtub it was a photograph of explains in the text that whenever he sharpens a pencil so short that he can no longer use it, he throws it in the bathtub and that he thought that when his bathtub was finally full to the brim with pencils, that that's when he would retire. But then, like some historical figures, he goes on to explain that late at night sometimes he'll sneak a few pencils out of the bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> as far as I know, I don't think either one of you is planning on retiring anytime soon, but, but I just sort of wonder, you know, how do you sort of wrap up these journeys or, or, or do you just sneak pencils out of the bathtub for as long as you can? Or Well, I think what we're talking about, though, is really a stance about how to live life, too. So I don't think it goes away. I mean, I think it is really a way of trying to engage the world. And hopefully that's in place until you die. I you know, utterly agree. And I think that, I mean, work is, I mean, I don't, I never work. You know, I can't, I can't tell, you know, there is no difference. Yeah. It's like, you know, you just live, you know, and you do these things in living and what are you going to, and yes, you are going to stop living and that's, you know, you know, you stop at that point, but it's, that's when you were talking, when we were talking at the very beginning about time and you just think of culture in general, you know, the larger culture, that one of the huge tragedies of it all is like these structures that require that so much of so many people's energies are spent in tasks that basically they don't want to do yeah i mean how how did that come about you know yeah. who's um yeah. diabolical scheme was this diabolical scheme right right how, yeah it's hard to put a stop to them so there's not a point where you pack up the museum and move to the country home to hang out with the grandkids 
But even if you do, like... No, you know, it, it would continue. It, it, it still it, could it continue, continues. exactly. You absolutely right. can do that. Conti- yeah. But, but it, 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 yeah, it seems like what you were saying at the beginning, the story about the Buddha is, feels like all the stuff, you know, this is the museum and the stuff that I write, they're all kind of these manifestations of this sort of belief system, and there are also little ways for that to happen on a given moment. Like right now in this conversation, I think we're trying to do that. We're trying to get at something real in a conversation, and then... You know, we're all going to go out into the, our next thing after this, and then it'll happen again. Like, it's a constant question to engage in terms of, like, how do you investigate an afternoon, you know, or the sky? So then what's the relationship of this kind of activity to the culture that Glenn was describing earlier as people watching, I forget which television programs they are, is what we do a... A thread that is continually running through. I mean, is it is it an antidote to is is that larger culture evil? Is it deadening to people, or is it? I mean, what you know? What is the relationship of this kind of activity to that kind of activity? Anything can be kind of twisted in a certain way. Like the TV shows don't have to be evil at all, and can be approached. I think with. They can supply humor and be... It, it, I think it's all about and balance or something. And, yeah. yeah, inside, and they can be kind of a delightful relief and a little mini escape and all of that. And some of them are, you know, will have a really good episode and then a really terrible episode. So it feels like it's about bulk, and it might just be about how you navigate it. And if you feel like you're picking it or you feel like it's picking you, and you don't have a choice but to turn on the TV, and then that's who you are right. versus saying... No, I think I'd like to watch TV, and then I'd actually like to turn off the TV, and that's the part that's really hard because if the turning off part, I think it is, and not like man, sure. maybe I shouldn't check email fifteen times. <laughs> maybe I should try to check email once. What would that? I tried to do that this Saturday, and it was like I was shocked how after every single thing I finished, I thought as a little reward, I had like a Pavlovian thing of now I should go check email, and I thought I'm not going to do email for all of Saturday. And it was really helpful, but it was it was very difficult and shocking how dependent I am. On this quasi-contentless stream of Yeah, bits. from just the email. At that point, it would just be some friend who would just be like, blah, 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 after my, you know, which I could call her up on the phone. We could have a conversation. I mean, it, it just becomes a kind of filler. And that's the danger, I think. Hey, little doggy, We have a visitor. Man. A little Sasha. Doggy, Sasha. Sasha, so sweet. Wagging her tail. Noble soul. And what sort of dog is Sasha? Maybe it's a he, Sasha. She's a a French skipper key, but it's just a breed we made up. (laughs) (laughs) She's cute. And is she depicted in any of the dog paintings in the next room? She's not. She almost huh. she almost made it as a model for one of the dogs <laughs> that went in went into space but didn't. So what do you think about dogs in space? I remember seeing My Life as a Dog. Yes, yeah, My Life as a Dog. It's a great, great film, but it's so heartbreaking. Right. Like a... All the rest of his movies have not been great. However, I know. Which is sad because he's obviously... A gifted yeah, guy, exactly. Yeah. Well, which may, was where maybe where economics, the commerce comes, comes in. in, commerce and you're right in intention. Yeah. yeah. For some reason, I want to say that it's the feeling of a place in terms of what we're, what I feel in this place, and it's sort of, um, I feel like whatever it is that intention is is that kind of you can't pinpoint where it happens. But, for example, it's something when I go to the farmer's market that's now attached to the Grove, the farmer's market in L.A., and I just go to that place to have a little meal, and it feels good. 
and it feels like there's something in the place and how it was set up and the purpose it served that just feels good as, as like a place to eat. You can't always pinpoint where you're going to have that feeling. It may be in a place that is specifically about investigating something um, artistic or something scientific or something in nature, or it can be as simple as a place you go to eat where you feel like there's something here that's working that has a depth to it. I don't know how to label that, but it feels like it's a way to kind of navigate the city a little mm-hmm. bit. And we tend to delineate things in terms of, well, this is art and this is science, or obviously we delineate those realms with many, many, many more divisions. And in a sense, it seems like maybe an aspect of this conversation is is more about a corporeal instantiation and not so much slicing right. things. Yeah. About the but, contiguousness of those um, spectrums rather than the need to break them up. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, I wish everyone a contiguous afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Amy Bender and David Wilson, thanks for visiting Strange Angels. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Glenn.